guys welcome back to a new episode of a day with if you're listening this it's because it's a tuesday so i hope you're having a great tuesday and i'm really happy for this new episode we have a guest his name is michael schindler and he's an expert in the retail industry he has been working for over 13 years at levi strauss i think everyone's familiar with the famous jeans and denim and the 501 it's amazing history i mean maybe if you have not bought or you don't own anything from them i think most likely you have seen their stores and we'll get into that a little bit later on but i guess i wanted to share one of the reasons i thought michael's story was so amazing and i really wanted him to come to the podcast was because he is one of the examples of being like an entrepreneur inside a multinational company. So he's been many years working in the same company, which is something we don't hear much lately. I think around millennials and around Gen Z, there's always this not anxiety, but thought of, okay, what's next for me? And I need to have something new coming every year or every two years. So I think that although that could be also a great way to, let's say, advance your career, there's a lot of opportunities we might miss by not growing in a company. I think Michael will share with us a lot of examples or reasons how you can also stay at a company and continue growing and not be a synonym of being stuck in your life if you're working for the same firm for over the years. So that was one of the reasons I thought that was super nice for us to get another perspective. And also just talking with Michael about how we are behaving as consumers. We speak a lot about sustainability, which is a topic that in my day to day, I wasn't being so aware. The conversation with him, I think it's even now in my head after that, the podcast, I was still thinking about the concepts he shared because at the moment you know we can't lie to ourselves we live in a world where we have been incentivized to consume and buy and there's Zara and there's so many fast fashion brands and you go to Instagram and it's full of advertisements and you know buy new things every time a new trend comes and a new trend can be every week so it's so fast forward versus you know his perspective coming from a company that actually their mission is to create something out of good quality history that you know you can use for over the years it's going to be still relevant never going to get out of date so from sustainability to how consumers behave and up to the skill sets that you need to change or update while you're growing within a company i think you guys are going to find this super helpful for your careers so let's get into it Fantastic. And thank you for having me. So I know you have because we spoke a little bit before the Mm -hmm. podcast and you have an amazing story, amazing international experience. So I wanted to start by just having a little introduction of your origins in San Francisco and then your early career days. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and first off, you're flattering me. It's <laughs> it's not amazing, just just probably a little bit different. So I'm originally from San Francisco, multiracial family. We just talked about it. I, I may not look like a Michael Schindler in the most <laughs> typical sense, but my mother's Japanese-American. My father's family was from Europe uh, originally and grew up in the city, went to, went to Berkeley, which was right across the bay. 
uh, worked in consulting, worked in finance, went back to business school to Berkeley, and then landed at Levi Strauss. And how did I land there? Uh, basically, it was a friend. I was in the midst of kind of exploring an, a startup with one of my classmates during my second year. Both of us decided maybe it was best to get a normal job yeah. and do that on the side. But I think for most of the entrepreneurs out there, I, I think it's you either go big or you go home, right? Mm-hmm. And and clearly that, that, that idea kind of fell to the wayside. Mm-hmm. But a friend called me up and said, look, Levi's is hiring um, and would you be interested? So that, that started my career at Levi's about 13 years ago. Uh, that was right before the financial crisis uh, really kind of took place like in 2007, 2000, 2008. Uh, I was in corporate finance because I thought I wanted to be in finance. I thought it was the career I continued to want to explore. And uh, at the time, I had a fantastic sponsor. And we'll talk about sponsorship later. But I had a sponsor who asked me whether or not I wanted to to move to Europe and move to Barcelona. And that was not a very difficult decision for for myself and my wife. And so we just did it. And that's that's what kicked it off. So a few years in Barcelona, here in Singapore, I've done everything from finance to merch planning to key account management, liquidation. So anything you want to know about retail, I think I can... uh, uh, chime in. I, I mean, from the start, what I, I love about hearing from you, because I know a lot of our listeners are younger people yeah. that sometimes you're thinking of making a decision where to start. And, uh, you know, the fear of what if I go into doing a job and I don't like it and then like, you know, my whole life is directed into finance. But it's it's great that you talk about that because it, it just showcases that you can try a little bit of everything at the beginning right yeah i think i think i think that's that's what it is right it's mm-hmm. to be open and it, it's you know the irony was you know as you kind of go through the career and people asked well how did you do that it must have been some sort of formal program it must there there must have been some mm-hmm. uh reason behind the madness yeah and the reality was it's just oh that sounds kind of cool and you just <laughs> raise your hand uh, and, you know, if you have enough goodwill within the company or with, within your network, people will give you a shot, uh, yeah. even if you've never done it. You know, I'm still trying to answer that question, you know, what do I want to do with my life and my career? But I'm, I'm finding that I want to do just about a little bit of everything. I really enjoy it. Also, something you mentioned in the intro was about how you got your first job, which was a friend of, you know, yeah. and I guess that's a lot of the reasons people go to M- MBA. Or I don't know if that was someone from your undergrad. And the drinking, let's be honest. <laughs> let's let's no, be very perfectly clear. <laughs> but uh. it's so important, right? Like I was talking to the CEO of a, a hedge fund today. And he was like, we're talking about how all of the jobs that you want to get, if you see them on LinkedIn, they might already have a candidate inside that someone recommended. Yeah. And it's so important just to like grow your network. Advocates and sponsors mm-hmm. are extremely, extremely important. All right. So after moving to Barcelona, then to Singapore, uh, you find yourself here and you now know a lot about denim. So I thought the first professional question was, you know, how was it working from Levi and, and the retail in general? But of course, you've been talking about jeans and denim for most of your life, I oh guess. My God. Not most of my life, most of my <laughs> professional life. But yes, I know way too much about denim, <laughs> denim pants. A couple things I've learned about okay. denim along the way. First and foremost, and it was completely true to my orientation. They said, you will never stop staring at people's butts. And it sounds 
absolutely <laughs> terrible, and you, you'd be shocked that HR would actually say, say something like that during an orientation. But it completely holds true. Whenever you worked at, at, a, at a branded company, you're actively seeking it out all the time, walking on the street, going to the mall, going out. You're seeing what are people really wearing. And being denim and being pants, your eyes would naturally glance down. And what we would look for is that arcuate all the time. <laughs> that's so funny. I'm is now unlearning that habit. It's a little <laughs> creepy, I think, sometimes if people don't know, but that people in the people in the industry would 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 relate. A Nike person is looking for a swoosh. I guarantee you a Lululemon person is looking for that like omega looking sign. It, it you you can't help yourself. So that but was, is it because like jeans, the way to know if it's a good jean or a bad jean, it's how, you know, shapes your butt or... No, it's the back detail. It's the actual pocket. So okay. the stitching could be a little bit different. So Levi's is very clear. You have a red tab mm -hmm. and then you have the arcuate, mm -hmm. right? And that's what, that's what we were always looking out for. Like what people were wearing out there. And if you see more of them, you know that we're winning. If you mm -hmm. see less on them, then something, something may be off. But that, that was one thing is that... Working in denim, working in pants, you look at a lot of butts, and you just can't help it. <laughs> uh, another thing was uh, everyone has an apparel story. I think that was something very interesting to me. I, I, I was never, I'm not a fashionista. I, I'm, I'm not a big fashion person. But everyone has some sort of emotional attachment to something they wear, whether it was something that was from college, whether it was something you know, out uh, later, like their first job, a suit, Things happen. People live in their clothes, and they and they share those. And across Asia, every taxi cab driver, every person I met had some sort of Levi's story that once they knew I worked at Levi's, <laughs> they could not help themselves but, but tell me. Yeah. Like, oh, I remember this. Oh, I remember the 501. I remember my first 501. I remember that I had to buy it secondhand. It, very odd emotional but very powerful emotional concept it's just the brand has a lot of history to it, it does. right which is super cool and and i guess you know hard to build because e-commerce and all of this you can be out of the game in a few years but levi's has been there for so long building brands i, I don't care what business line you're in uh your your, obje your objective should be to build a brand mm -hmm. uh that is an incredibly powerful thing i mean i you can make a lot of mistakes mm. but if your brand is strong enough it will see it all the way through mm. but i'm going to flip i'm going to ask you do you have an apparel story with the is there a piece that you remember that so, you have in your closet <laughs> okay so levi's i'm from colombia mm. when i was growing up uh, this was kind of the i mean the pricing of levi's it's quite pricing in yeah. general, right? It's not like Zara or any fast fashion, but in Colombia, it was a piece of luxury, yes, right? Absolutely. So that's cool. Mm -hmm. In I went to a private school in Colombia that you have to wear a uniform. Yep. But once every th two or three months, we had what we call the jean day. Mm -hmm. So jean days where you can come in like normal clothes, and people would like save money for that so i do remember i had like a, a levi's um jacket yeah yeah see you your eyes sparkle up you start <laughs> to smile right everyone has a story and a lot of people have stories related to specific apparel yeah. items and that that's something else i learned uh, and the last thing is uh selling jeans while it may seem really old tech it's actually quite complicated to do uh it's a very difficult sell at the end of the day um uh, when you think about sizing 
when you think about fit, when you think about how you consume it, it's, it's very challenging to actually sell. So for example, sizing. So that's why, and I challenge you users out there, when you go to fast fashion, when you go to different places, you'll notice that they're a little light on pants. And the reason being is it, it's complicated. The, what you have to carry to what you need to sell is very, very complicated uh, and, and, and quite cumbersome, to be honest. It, it's, it's a surprisingly old tech kind of business, but kind of a one that's rife in complexity. But to that, for instance, how do you do to sell in this modern world where, you know, for me personally, I'm not sure if everyone out there is the same, but... Yeah. I know me and my girlfriends, we would never buy like a jean online because you don't know how it would fit, mm -hmm. you know? It's a hard sell. And that's where the store staff and the stylists and, you know, kind of hooking you in into the brand is so important. Yeah. Because if you know a jean that looks good and you know, you know, you know your size more or less, you're going to tend to probably gravitate toward that again. And I had read, and, you know, I'm not the marketing insights person, but I had read... Uh, Jeans were the second most difficult category for, for females to buy. The first being swimwear, the second being jeans. Because of the fit, the size, it's so varied across that ecosystem. It speaks to your point, you want to try it on. With jeans, I also had another question because it's so good quality. Mm. People keep them for years. Yep. So what's, you know, in a way, a marketing thing that you can say, okay, you need to buy another one because, you know, if I have already two, three jeans, you know, that are perfectly. It's interesting. Um, I think the more interesting question related to that is how do you create energy, right, within, within a category? And uh, there are a lot of different ways you could do that. What you see in jeans and like other fashion or other creative industries is always there's a cycle, right? Yeah. So when was the last time you were wore a boot cut? Oof, can't remember. Yeah, but it's coming back, <laughs> right? So you there are these cycles, right? Yeah. The next uh, here in Asia in particular, but I'm sure you've seen it as well. Relaxed fit for for women, right? The boyfriend jean or something like that. Uh, it used to be super skinny all day long. And now it's changed. So one one part of your question is there really are fashion trends uh, mm. that people kind of come in and out of, and that creates some impetus to buy. Uh, and then it's the energy around the story and the brand and, and the emotion that it can actually bring out, uh, whether it's a, a Levi story from, you know, from a private school that you remember the brand or to a first date or to something else. You, mm. you, you, you have to grab on these moments. And the last pillar, I think, now is a little bit around sustainability, and we could talk a little bit about that. For sure, because how company like Levi's can survive in a world where we see, I don't know if you heard about Sheen? Yeah, of course. It's oh, like, I got into a big argument with someone about Sheen the other day. Like $5 thing. <sighs> I don't know if yeah. the quality, if, you know, you actually are getting what you ordered, <laughs> but it, it's been huge. No, it's absolutely. I, I think in the U.S., Sheen might be uh, the number one downloaded the fashion app, uh, period. Right. Wow. And I think if you ask uh, younger folks, they pretty much buy from Amazon and they buy from Sheen. Look, you're not going to reinvent. When you look at luxury and you look at some of these other more established brands, they really need to play within their DNA and what they are. And what they are is not reinventing the wheel constantly. And in fact, I see increasingly folks trying to embrace the fact of being slow fashion, classic 
timeless, right? Uh, will last a long time, lots of uses, multiple years, durability. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where you're also seeing those same brands start to or play or is also around customization, right? So what can I do to that Timberland boot? What can I do to that jean? What is the experience in store, right? And they're also giving the customer an, op- an opportunity to participate in that design, to make it special, and again, connect that that emotional heartstring through it. Is that why a few years ago I started to see at the Levi's stores, you mm. know, you would see like an artist playing music and then like another artist like doing names in the back of your jackets and you can like tailor made something yep. at the store, you know? That's part of the energy. Also, there's a, with that, with Levi's in particular, there's a strong connection with, uh, with music. Uh, you know, when you think about rock bands, things like that. So they always tend to play in music. But if you go... Uh, if you go anywhere in China or if you go increasingly here in Singapore, you'll see these little customi- customization pop-ups in, in these stores. And in fact, I'm seeing stores just being dedicated to customization. Like I, there was one in Funan that I saw where they literally just had sewing machines that you can pick something to embroider and it will it will do it there. There is this play within customization that can kind of counteract a little bit newness. Right. right. And without talking bad about those fast fashion, because I'm also, I'm not going to lie, I shop at Zara, yeah. uh, you know, not H&M, but, you know, mm. here and there. But what is that sustainability feature that could go into brands that maybe sell one jean, but like, you know, we can use this several times versus something that's going to be broken in after the first wear? Yeah, it, it, it really is around consumer engagement and really communicating the, the value proposition to the, to the customer so that they understand. Now, I don't think you say mine's better than this. It's just that you, you have to present the suite of benefits of what you bring to the table. Um, I think one of the challenges for consumers nowadays is how do you really decipher how good or bad a company really is, right? How sustainable something is or not. Um, I could tell you sustainability, uh, it, it's, it's not the cheapest road, right? So if you're, my, my litmus test is normally is if, it, if that seems like a screamingly good deal, you, you should ask yourself at least mentally through the exercise, how are they bringing that to market at, at those sorts of prices? Mm-hmm. I think, I think that's, that's, that's one element. And now, uh, last question about, you know, the retail industry in general. Yeah. I remember going back when I was doing my business courses, et cetera, we would talk about how companies might study, you know, the stores and the behavior of people when they come in the store, you know, then most you wouldn't think about it. But, you know, women, we enter and we go directly to our right and like start like going mm-hmm. around the store like that. Is that something you guys actually look at all the time to see where to put the new items or how to engage people to go and try it? And, and is there a reason behind that? Best-in-class retailers absolutely look at that. Yeah. Uh, they actually Those cameras that are above you that kind of look like cones, it's actually tracking your dwell time and where you are in the store. Oh, it's not security? like if you're Well, it's, it's a traffic counter, yeah. but also it, it, it's really kind of looking... Uh, Best in class, you know, fixture to fixture, fixture to fixture, and and dwell time. And if you're best in class, you know which product you have where and when. And based on that information, you you can change the visual merchandising of it, which is you could, oh, my center lead. The center lead is when you walk into a store, it's kind of that first table that you see. 
that drives a disproportionate amount of the sales. It's mm-hmm. a big number. So you better have a very cohesive story and your best seller is there. Then as you go toward more of the wall base, that's where someone kind of browses around and you could play within stories and collections or you could do fit, for example. Here's my skinny, here's my uh, uh, boyfriend. And you just experiment which one is uh, driving the best result. Mm -hmm. And if you have a large enough network and you have a big enough team with enough data to take a look at it, you can do some very interesting analyses and adjustments. That is so cool. I mean, I'm imagining myself just analyzing, like, how many people tried the gene, how many people don't even touch it. Yeah, Yeah, and one of the things that, you know, whenever you guys walk or any of your, 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 your fans here walk into a store, you should ask yourself, did the... Did the stylist try to get me into the uh, changing room? So it's very interesting. When you actually get someone into the changing room, uh, the conversion starts to spike, right? Oh, versus just looking around. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So if it feels like a very natural process to you, I think that they've done a very good job with their store staff. And that's <laughs> what they're trying to do. You, Once you enter the threshold, you're in the domain of traffic. Mm-hmm. Once you're there, it's how do I help you uh, with the assortment and the collection that I have, and what do, what am I learning about you and your preferences and your tendencies? And then can I take you into the or guide you to the the changing room? Yeah. And if I've done all of that, you have a pretty good shot of actually converting a sale. And we call that the consumer journey. Gosh, the amount of budget and time to train all of the salespeople to be able to actually, you know, it's, it's relying a lot into those people to get the sales done then. Well, this is this is inherently, the, I think, the complexity in, in an offline world versus an online world, right? In an online world, uh, you, you have a storefront, but you can have infinite combinations of it that the machine is running but then you also have to think about how many engineers and product people are behind that just to execute that one experience but at scale Mm -hmm. it's pretty amazing but then think about it then in the offline world Mm -hmm. you really need to teach and train each one of those folks who may or may not stay right Mm -hmm. the, the turnover tends to be quite high how to deliver that in a, in a, in a consistent and a meaningful way. Does that also play uh, any role when you're saying, okay, we're going to have a store in Singapore versus Vietnam or even in the same city from one neighborhood to another? Mm-hmm. Do the store changes like in terms of, I don't know, the way they're structured or also outside, you know, the way it's, it's done? So from one country to the other country, right, that, that's just around market mapping and market development. So if you're not capital constrained, you, you will open up mm-hmm. both, right? If you're capital constrained, you're going to have to make trade-off decisions. And you, it has to not only be looked through a financial lens, uh, it has to be looked also through kind of a strategic lens as well and a marketing lens. And that gets into the next question, which is around the different door formats. Why would you have a flagship versus a shop and shop? Like, uh, so Nike, right? Uh, or uh, or Apple, right? Apple has their beautiful orchard, like flagship store, right? Yeah. Um, uh, it's a brand statement. It, it's, it's doing something inherently different than say the Apple product I can also buy in ion at the kiosk or whatever so that that's part of the market mapping that one does and uh you 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 don't create snowflakes if you're at scale snowflake is you make everything bespoke but you should have a selection of stores for this particular consumer which could be the ion consumer which is more high-end 
So you have to think about the consumer in those lanes, and then you have basically a portfolio of this is what I should select for which one. And I love what you're saying because it depends also with the company, right? Let's say Apple right now, they're in a lev at a level where yeah. for them, they can spend a store at the MBS, which is just the structure it's is amazing. amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah. But the price <laughs> of the things inside, it's exactly yeah. the same as anywhere. They're, like they're really the pinnacle of, I think, of, mm. of retail execution. I mean, it's very different. Yeah. Uh, but the, the place where you would see this best expressed, I think, would be somewhere like a China, mm -hmm. uh, where you have brands such as Adidas or Nike. They'll have six or seven different formats that do different things and have different strategic intent and also have different consumers. Uh, they've really segmented their consumer really well. They know where they're shopping and they know that they must provide an 001 flagship experience to, you know, hey, this is my shop and shop and we're just going to sell a lot and make a lot of money, but not, not as elevated. Oh, wow. This is super interesting. I, I think it's exciting. Moving on to your professional life, we're talking about staying at, at that company for over 13 years. And so when we first spoke, I feel like, so aged now. No, <laughs> no <laughs> this no. is the number one question I get from younger folks is like, oh, my God. Exactly. But I thought it was so yeah. refreshing because I myself have stayed at my company almost like six years now. And I feel yeah. like I'm like the odd of my own generation, you know, right. like people change so much so quickly i feel like it's beginning to be like oh if you stay over two years in a company it's wrong you're not going to get a better job but it's not the case at all i don't think and so my question to you because i know the answer already but why 13 years or how can you stay somewhere 13 years yeah, i think i think it boils down to three things uh, one is around opportunity mm -hmm. so we we talked and hinted about it a little bit is you know to be able to work in barcelona that's 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 not such a difficult decision to come mm -hmm. to work to Singapore, yeah, that that's not not yeah. bad. San Francisco, Barcelona, and Singapore. I think I've I've pretty much lucked out in places to work. So that that's one. To to be able to also raise your hand and go from finance to key account management, to strategy, to merch planning, to real estate, to franchisee. You were wow. changing roles every year almost. It's like a yeah. new... <laughs> Not quite that much, but it was around every 24 months, yeah. right? And uh, so I, I probably had eight roles there over the course of around 13 and a half years mm -hmm. uh, and or seven roles. And and being enabled to explore all these different these different avenues that, that, that kept me. What was very interesting about that path was I knew the core business so well, but to look at it from different vantage points was super interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I felt that it really equipped me with a kind of a unique skill set and also equipped me a lot with a lot of empathy because, you, you know, teams could be in silos and they could start saying, oh, well, that, you know, the HR team or the IT team, usually it's the support functions that always get the, <laughs> yeah. get the short end of the stick. But then if you've worked in them, you kind of understand it a little bit from their point of view. They're getting requests every yeah. second. What do they prioritize? Yeah. Right. But sales also, what, what they have to face on the front line when you're staring and you're walk you're you're, you're talking to a customer negotiating something it is it is a very different different experience so that was one part was opportunity two was impact uh, so they they were able to 
give me all sorts of jobs, but all of them were basically to start something new or mm -hmm. to reevaluate something. Or they didn't know what to do, so give it to Mike and maybe we'll figure it out along the way. Uh, and so the projects I got involved with were, were really amazing and transformative. Uh, and many of them are still in place at the company 13 <laughs> years later. Um, and I won't lie here. The last part is kind of financial. Oh, right? Of course. I mean, you, you, you know, there's, you know, if, if you grow up in a company and you're doing well, they, they tend to take care of you. The, the costing switch, right, uh, becomes a little bit different as you start to move up the, the, the leadership ladder. I think this is something we all need to continually challenge ourselves what, with is, you know, does that make you complacent or are you doing what you want? Right. Because that's what I'm starting to see kind of happen now uh, with my friends. Uh, you know, some of them just very comfortable with what they're doing and, and are doing a great job at it and, and are very happy. And then there is another set of friends who may have made it to a certain level, but now they're feeling a little antsy and they want to do something different and are willing to take the financial sacrifice to do so. Yeah, but it's kind of something I'm jealous about the multinationals. You get like shares, stocks, and and it's kind of hard to leave that, right? Oh. I, I would I would believe, but well, those are the golden handcuffs. Those yeah. things are very real. Um, mm -hmm. When you look at making that switching cost, uh, I, I've known a lot of people uh, across the organization. And, and I don't blame them if, if you were eligible for a pension, right? Mm. You had a pension if you were going to work a certain amount of years, which covers your health care, you know, and, and some financial uh, uh, benefit every year. If you had shares vesting, if you – it's a hard decision, and people can get very comfortable. And we'll talk about more of like that balance uh, of, you know, your working life versus your personal in yeah. a bit because I think it's so important. But uh, maybe give us some a caller. How can someone feel like a, a little bit of an entrepreneur inside a multi or a big company, a multinational company? So it, it goes back to something I said a little bit earlier is when you hear something that sounds mildly interesting, raise your hand. People should be accountable for their own path, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel that if I and I've noticed this uh, over the years, if I do a good job, then I should therefore receive this. Right. Right. Um, it's it's not quite entitlement, but it's just kind of like, oh, it's this very linear structure. And and I'm here to tell you that's that's not <laughs> that's the case. Not you know, you you take something that may be below you, but doing something really interesting. Right. And mm. you raise your hand and see what happens. Uh, but in order to do that, you you have to have, again, that sponsorship and you need to have those advocates who are who are willing to to back you to be able to make those changes and also guide you right now to mm -hmm. your point one of our episodes was uh, with um, a person at google and he was saying that his sponsor and his manager said if you want to go this way start engaging in this project yep. and almost start working on the job that you want to be at like without having the role without having the promotion but already doing the work 100 <laughs> percent. i couldn't agree more with what that person said mm. uh, I, I always went in with the job with the mindset of let's make my job as redundant as possible because if i can make it redundant that gives me more free time to basically work on the projects or expose myself to other things that may open different doors. The people who end up getting ahead are the ones who end up taking a little bit more, uh, whether it's delivering that project you know, or, or launching that new business. And the only way to do that is 
basically get your day-to-day under control pretty easily yeah. so that you have enough flex time to be able to explore some of the other opportunities. Mm. And raise your hand. I love what you said that you have to move forward. Like, oh, it's, it has to come from you. No one would yep. be like, hello, are you interested in... <laughs> It's not going to find you. You have, you to, have to take accountability for your career, mm-hmm. right? And, you you know, the managers and leaders, they, they try their best. Uh, but at the end of the day, the individual has a lot more power in the process than they realize. Uh, and it's around, it, it's really around a mindset. Don't, don't wait around. Mm-hmm. Make it happen for yourself. And, and one of the ways is, yeah, just get your day-to-day under control. Mm-hmm. Make it as redundant as possible so that you have the flex time to really show what and to shine, show what you can do and to shine. So you were saying about leadership. Yeah. And you grew uh, in a company a lot. Like you started, you know, from, I don't know if it was an analyst, but, you know, from the start. Analyst. <laughs> analyst from the very bottom, yes. And you grew into, you know, one of the executives. So how do you think leadership changes in all of these uh, years or in the roles that you had? So I was an analyst and I, and I had three senior directors. So the <laughs> when I first started, I'm sure some people are familiar with the inver- inverted pyramid uh, mm-hmm. that that definitely exists. Uh, but over the, what what I found over the years, uh, when it comes to management and leadership, what makes you successful at one level actually works against you at the next level, and your success is contingent and dependent on your ability to adapt and realize that change. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that, if you were to think about, I, I hate pyramids, but if you think about a pyramid, on the bottom level, you kind of have the, let's call it the the how, how work gets done. If you're an analyst, well, do I do I do this in Excel? Do I, do I pull from this system? It's kind of like a how. A manager tells you the what. This is what you need to do. You figure out the how. Okay, yes. Okay, so analyst, you figure out the how. My job as manager is what? Then a and managers up. like need to see like what needs to be done priorities right like they're allocating they're allocating resources mm-hmm. based on priorities mm-hmm. uh, but remember they have a manager telling them what <laughs> they should be doing but more importantly why right so elite once you get beyond the manager level it's really around communicating why something is important why we need to shift focus why we need to pivot off of something. And then when you go up one level from that, when you really start getting to kind of C-suite executives is who, who are we? Who's our customer? What is our culture, right? How do we want to operate? And there's such confusion between each one of those levels. But if you can imagine, it's a very different mindset as you go up. So if you were a great analyst and you're great at figuring out how, when you become a manager, you're, it's not the how, it's the what. That's going to make you really, really powerful. And people tend to go back to what had made them successful. Mm-hmm. So it's a big learning. And that's something I learned along the way. Stumbling, stumbling. <laughs> I love that you said stumbling because, wow, yeah. how hard it is to change your mind from, okay, tomorrow I got a promotion. And then from now on, I'm not thinking on the how. I'm thinking on the what. You know, it's not, not that easy. Knowing where you are and what you're trying to do, right, within that context will, 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 will be beneficial. And you know, you don't want your managers to be too detailed, right? But that's because you know, that that that's what the analysts are doing. And managers who don't do well, but might have been great analysts, are getting way too much in the detail. And then that's why you find the C level uh, executives just giving more of like those B, B big big ideas, right? Big idea. And sometimes you're like, 
they don't know because they don't know how hard it is to build that, but they have the idea or they motivate the people because it's the who we are, why we can go exactly. to the next level. And when you start really venturing into that, that's why there there are these tensions between it. Because I remember being at the Bombay, like, oh my God, they don't know what they're talking yeah. about. But at the same time, the closer I got up to, I'm like, that's tough. I totally get where we're doing with that. No, I don't want to tell you how to do and what system to go into or any of those things. That's that's not my job anymore. So understand your job. Understand what question you're trying to answer and then be able to communicate uh, uh, as much as possible relevantly is, is really important. I really appreciate what you're saying right now. Thank you for, for, for sharing this with us because this, I think, it's a great tool for people to have in their mind. So, okay, if I'm moving on, how my mindset should also move on and... and think differently i guess it took me 13 years to figure that one out so that, <laughs> the pyramid <is laughs> so that no 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 and you know you become more empathetic also to to your managers managing is hard and and leading is very hard as well all right so 13 years and a half you said and now you mentioned you were taking a sabbatical year yes with every great thing that you mentioned about all of your learning and the financial uh, also perks that, yeah. that a big company has, what took you to say, okay, it's time for me to stop? And what would you recommend to people that are in the, the decision of, should I continue doing something I don't like? Or how can I listen to myself and figure out what I actually want to do? Yeah, I think... Again, why do you stay there? It's around opportunity, impact, and financials, right? And as I started looking forward into my career path, say over the next couple of years, I started not being able to clearly see how I can get from A, A to B. And also the, the organization has been a tremendous turnaround story. It's become a lot more structured, which is great, which is what it needed. But my ability to be impactful and play into my strengths was starting to get maybe a little bit more defined, mm-hmm. uh, probably defined a bit too much for me. Mm-hmm. So I've did, I wanted to do something a little bit more, uh, more f- with more flexibility. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other reason... Uh, and let's call it what it is, is COVID-19. And, you know, if something doesn't shake you up around your priorities <laughs> like yeah. this, it's, 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 I mean, it's a very alarming experience for everyone else, but it's a tremendous opportunity for everyone to be able to reevaluate what's on your plate. What do you want to do? Where right? Or where be? do you want to learn? Right? You don't have to know what you want to do. It's just, what do you want to learn? What excites you? Uh, and what excited me, uh, it's been a lot of self-reflection, but it's been uh, working with smaller teams, launching new things, uh, and having the freedom and space to do that. Not that I didn't have it, but it was it was just a bit more structured. And so now I'm jealous of all the people who work at uh, you know smaller companies. I'm looking to go the other, you know, go go in a slightly different way. Yes, I mean obviously COVID has been very difficult and and very bad for many things, but I do think something great that this experience has left us is like for the first time maybe we saw ourselves sitting down in a room with our thoughts, you know, like cuz I bet you were traveling around like many yes. others. So sometimes that's what you need to hear your thoughts and be like, wait a minute, what do I want, right? I became a full-time teacher and dad pretty much to <laughs> home-based learning children. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was so painful, but so rewarding at the same time, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, we come up with a lot of excuses for ourselves on why we do what we do. Um, but, you know, when it's all said and done... Were you able to play in your strengths and were you able to play where what energizes you? And I think you need to, you know, these moments 
give that opportunity where that will lead. Uh, it could be totally stressful and totally different. And I may go, you know, running back to an MNC. But but today, my mind is, is clearer in terms of what do I prioritize in life? What do I want to maximize? And uh, how do I do that? I want to ask you, it doesn't have to be with a piece, but, you know, any story that you can share with us throughout these years that uh. might have like, you know, uh, <laughs> there are too many <laughs> after 13 years. <laughs> I remember, I distinctly remember. So I, but I was working at Barcelona at the time. I was working in finance. Um, we were doing a pop-up sale. So a pop-up sale is kind of like you, you set up like in a warehouse or an open area. You have some old excess and obsolete inventory. You bring it to a market or a town where they may not have readily available access. Remember, the internet was not as well developed at that time. And you set up a shop and you do you, you just basically work through it for three or four days and, and call it a day. And I remember and, and the proceeds, uh, I, I must say Levi's was quite good. And the, uh, uh, the proceeds went to, to a lot of charities mm-hmm. as well. And I, uh, I raised my hand to, to go ahead and help. I thought, OK, I'll just stack jeans or, you know, I'll, I'll do whatever I can. No, they put me on the front line. I landed in Spain without speaking much <laughs> or any Spanish. Right. <laughs> By the time I did this volunteer Even activity, that I speak Spanish is hard to understand them. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it, it's Castellano, right? It's yeah. not a, you know Espanol. It's 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 a little bit different, and they speak very fast. Yes. And they basically put me on the sales floor. So there I am, you know, Michael Schindler, who yeah. looks somewhat Asian in the middle of a pueblo, like yeah. at a pop up, and people would come up to me and just start firing off questions. Oh my. God. You know, half day was really intimidating. But actually what it did was it was a great experience for me because and a memorable one, because one, it, it kind of you know, being in mostly corporate roles, it kind of reminds you what the front line is like. Yeah. It is very different. After I finished that, I I was so tired. And then I kind of reflected. I said, man, people have to do this every single day. It's the hardest and they're tank the ones who make it happen. That's where the business happens. Uh, and from that, whenever I have a chance to be on the front line, uh, whether it's for a day, two days, or a week, doesn't matter, raise my hand because you learn so much. Yeah, cool. And I bet you came back to the office with, like, you do your day-to-day job, like, also op- your mind is already opened up to, like, ideas. Revenue recognition. I was like, I don't really, or, you know, <laughs> cost center reconciliations at that time. I was like, oh, I don't. But uh, no, it's true. You're reminded that you there is a real business behind it there are real people out there on the front line and they're real fans out there who 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 are super engaged that's super uh, to see the fans to see the people that like it and hear yourself how they're receiving the product i think that's super cool too yeah that's that was a fun one all right so to end up with a quick Q&A, the first question is and this is like the first thing that comes to your mind mm-hmm. so what was one of your favorite roles um, that you had in the past firm and why so one of them was uh, this scary term called asset recovery but basically what that was is excess and obsolete inventory liquidation and the reason why I loved that role it was it was my first commercial role okay and the other reason was uh, you met the most interesting characters in the world right you, you don't think about what happens to inventory right after it goes through certain channels you know after you know after it's in the store then it goes the outlet then what do you do what's left over and it is rife with the most 
interesting people who will negotiate over five cents on a unit, right? It is crazy. <sighs> then they bring these trucks in and you just load it up. And if you've done a good job, you've defined where they can and cannot sell it. And it just disappears that was the entrepreneur real real entrepreneurs negotiating they were they were wheeling and dealing and you would go to their warehouses and they have all the brands you can ever think of just in boxes just stacked collecting them not collecting them flipping them they were just they were just working right through that inventory super amazing oh wow Uh, that was a that was that was a fun fun job to kind of get a you know a preview of that world (laughs) all right second question how many jeans do you own i think i'm down to 12 12 were you having your own little collection or well the 13 i was able to shed were 13s i did not feel emotionally attached to right they didn't have a story that resonated with me Mm -hmm. the 12 there's a story Mm -hmm. behind each one of those that that you know birth of a child or whatever this shirt i wore for both of my kids the first time i met them Oh. Right, and I was like, there are things that you 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 remember. My first five hundred one when I when I started the company and I bought, I still have. It's thirteen, fourteen years old. Might be worth some money now, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's vintage. But uh, yeah, twelve I'm... with twelve good stories at least behind them. Closing the the circle when we started talking about how there's always memories, and yep. I think everyone can relate that you always have a piece in your closet. It could be jeans, but it could be whatever that you never use you don't even might not like it but you don't throw it away or give it to anyone like you have to have it there it's a memory i'm telling you this this emotion and it it, it, that that's the power of brands that's the power of things that are meaningful another question i had is something what would be something you you, if you could that you would tell your 18 years old self Okay, financially, I would have said buy as much Apple stock as humanly possible because <laughs> Apple was like on its last days, and that was well before Bitcoin and all these cryptos, oh right? I would have bought as no, but that's, that's me thinking that. just like totally selfishly. But uh, you know, truth be told, I tell myself uh, try to find balance. You know, when we're young, it's you know, it's all about you know work or whatever, right? And and things. When you're when you're like that, things things get sacrificed. Whether those are relationships, whether that's your health, or whether it's a lot of. Uh, so I would have liked to have told my 18 year old self, you know, make sure you always find balance. What balances you can change over time, but find some sort of semblance of balance. Sometimes we forget, and we're just like extremes, right? No, and when we when we're extremes, we we neglect something on the other side. Mm. There's only 24 hours in the day. And all right, so just to end on a fun note, yeah. um, you've been around the world. What has been one of your favorite trips? So I like have different chapters here because I just I was I was thinking about this, and you know it it would I'd be a terrible dad if I didn't say one of my favorite trips was a family trip, and Aww. that and that had to be in Australia, the first time we ever went. Okay, uh, we went to Perth. And it was the first time my kids got to actually see real animals, right? We did a farm stay. We did oh. we did all sorts of things like that. And that was that was a lot of fun. That's cool. um, as a newlywed, uh-huh. <laughs> well before that, before children, 
it was a it was a trip to San Sebastian uh, with my parents. So basically, it was a foodie culinary tour all through the you know they had the pinchos, right? Pinchos, pinchos. Yeah, uh, it was absolutely fantastic. I know it might be controversial for some of your your listeners, but I think the best food in in uh, in, in Europe is in San Sebastian or País Vasco, the best country. <laughs> but I'll throw it out there. And then as a kid, it, it, it had to be a backpacking trip. So we went through Yosemite uh, with, my, with my grandfather on horseback, went fishing all through Yo, you know, Yosemite. And we went to play. If you're on horseback with yeah. like a mule train and guides, you can get quite far out. Yeah. And so you get to see things that, that, that aren't on those typical touristy you know, postcards. But then you're also able to experience things like bears really rummaging through the campgrounds, or you know, fishing with a grandfather that that's no longer here. That, that those are those are that's that was a strong super trip. Cool. I've never yeah. been to that side of the U.S., but yeah. it sounds amazing. Cool. Okay, Michael. I mean, I could stay here for hours talking with you. Oh, me Honestly, too. <laughs> I've learned so much. I want to say thank you because today I feel like I I went to a mini mini like you know business school course. Which oh, you're being too kind. Again. I hope you do more of the. No, not only my. I hope I feel like people. You were talking about leadership and sponsorship, which is so important. But I feel like you are such a good teacher. So I really appreciate all those tips. Hopefully, hmm? everyone listening had also something you know they can take and apply. Oh, thank you own. for the kind words. No, and and trust me, there were a lot of mistakes and management <laughs> mistakes and leadership mistakes along the way. No one's perfect. Yeah. Uh, but I'm glad, uh, you know, if, if you got something out of it and if your listeners do, uh, that means the world to me. For it's sure. very worthwhile. I'll look at the Levi's store very different next time I walk up past one of them. Like, <laughs> oh, the work that they have to do, the, the people at the store, you know. Anyways, thank you everyone for listening to the episode. I um, hope you enjoyed it. Please uh, go to our Instagram account, a date with dot podcast, to see the back scenes of this episode. Uh, we'll tag Michael there too, so that you can find them. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, let us know your comments there on Instagram, and see you in the next episode. <laughs>